Bibles, I would encourage you and invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, We're going to start in the book of Romans this morning. As you're turning there, just an encouragement to our hearts this morning that God does hear and answer prayer and is kind and gracious to us. We have our dear brother Keith with us this morning, and he is seeing rainbows of color, so Skittles got nothing on you. Um, we are excited about uh, the, um, the praise that God has restored um, eyesight and restored seeing and, and uh, amazing surgery that went so well. So uh, praise the Lord. It's a blessing to have you back with us. And also, directly in the corner, diagonal, uh, in this section is our dear sister Pam Gill. She is back with us this morning as well. So Uh, We've been praying for you. We'll continue to be praying, but it is a blessing to see you here this morning. So God does answer prayer. Amen. God is a gracious God. He longs to give us good things, and he does that. And if we ask him for good things, he will either give us that good thing or say no because he has something better for us. He is a good father, and he will not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. So praise the Lord for answered prayer. This morning we are going to look at the issue of unity and we're specifically going to look at Paul's challenge and charge to the church in Philippi by staring at the work of Jesus Christ. It should transform their mind, their thinking, their heart, and their living. And before we go to Philippians, I wanted to start in Romans chapter 12 because I've been reading through a program for the Bible in a year, and I think it was Thursday that I read through Romans 12 through 16, and all throughout it, if we had time, I would just read those passages all the way through, Romans 12 through Romans 16, because throughout the entirety of these passages, Paul is saying many things, but there is one common thread that unites all of it, and that is love one another, be unified with one another. Do not despise one another. Take care of one another. Whatever you have against somebody in your community, figure it out and get rid of it. And with the lenses of unity as um, our glasses this morning, I wanted to read through just chapter 12 and just make a couple notes as we go through. But again, in preparation of communion, I want these words to pour over our own hearts as we hear Paul's encouragement to the church He's writing to this book of of the Romans. It says this in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We might say, well, how are we supposed to do that, Paul? How are we supposed to live in such a way that our entirety of our lives is spiritual worship? Verse 3, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Not to think more highly of ourselves, esteem others as more important as ourselves, as Paul's going to say in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 4, 
For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We're members together of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, but all under the first bookend of the fact that we are individually members of one another, so we need to encourage each other and live in harmony and unity together, building each other up. And then with the second book, end of verse 9, let love, as you're serving one another and being together as a body, be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. How are we supposed to be devoted to one another in brotherly love? Paul answers it by giving us, really, it's a participle, giving preference to one another in honor. That's how we are devoted, prefer one another in honor. Don't look out for your own interest. Verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Diligence both in serving the Lord and also in being devoted to one another. It takes work. You don't naturally wake up and desire or are able to live in harmony with one another. I think it's the exact opposite. We wake up with a natural fleshly bent towards, I know I have something wrong with somebody. It's naturally our fleshly state. So we need to not lag behind in diligence. Verse 12, we need to rejoice in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality towards one another and towards those around us. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Don't look out for your own interest. Don't think, I'm going through perfect circumstances, so why should I weep? There's no reason for me to weep. And you, by the way, should get it together because don't you see how awesome life is for me? No, rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who weep. One pastor said, based on that verse, because of the people that you know, and it is more than you would think you know, you should always be rejoicing and you should always be weeping. You should always be rejoicing and you should always be weeping because there is somebody who is going through something that we can praise the Lord for and there is somebody going through something that we need to reach out to and love with the love of Christ and weep with them. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Be of the same mind. Think the same thing. Don't be disunified. Don't have any sense of disunity in your midst. So be of the same mind, and I guess one of the enemies of that is don't be haughty or prideful in your mind, but associate with the lowly, with each other. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Going back to verse 3, We shouldn't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Don't be haughty in your mind. Don't be prideful in your mind or think better of yourself than you ought to. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Fight for that. Fight for peace with everyone through speech, through actions, through attitudes, do not be used of Satan, as it were, to cause 
divisive spirit in the body. Fight for peace with all men. No qualifications. What if he does this? What if she said that? But you don't know what they think about me. You don't know what they've said about me behind my back. No qualifications. If possible, as far as it depends on you, maybe they don't want to be at peace, but you need to be at peace with all men. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, I would have said, the wrath of God's better than any wrath you can bring. <laughs> leave room for his wrath, because whatever wrath you think you're going to bring on somebody, God will pay much bigger dividends than you ever will. But Paul's a better author than me, so he goes to the word of God and says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Leave it to the Lord. Trust the Lord. God is sovereign and in control. Be at peace with all men, and if someone is refusing to be at peace with you, then leave it in the hands of the Lord and be at peace in your own heart towards that person. Verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So therefore, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So many references to unity, so many references to a disposition in our hearts that must be there through the power of the Spirit to love one another with a supernatural love. This is not a natural love. This is not a fleshly love. Last week, we looked a little bit at fleshly love. We looked a little bit at our fleshly desires. If you remember, a fleshly desire that we know we all have is the same that Satan had in Isaiah chapter 14, who said, I will make myself like the Most High God, the owner of heaven and earth, the creator of the world. I'm going to make myself like him and shove him down below my feet. We spoke last week really on the bad news that we have all sinned and gone astray. And that sin is not just messing up. It's not just a bad thing that we've done. Sin at its very essence is cosmic treason, according to R.C. Sproul. Every sin that we commit, we are ultimately saying, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, yes, I know we aren't allowed to eat of that tree, but I don't really care what you think, and you're just standing in the way between me and what I desire most, so get out of the way. I wish you were off the throne. I wish you were dead. I wish you were gone, because you are just standing in the way. You're a hindrance to my greatest satisfaction. That's our fleshly state. Our fleshly state is not to think of ourselves lowly and think of others more exalted than ourselves. Our fleshly state is to be haughty in our own eyes. Turn to 1 Samuel. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Just by way of a roadmap for us this morning, we're going to spend the majority of our time really on an introduction We'll spend a little bit of, of our time back in Philippians, but I want to introduce the section that we are jumping into that we'll spend the next couple weeks in because it's important to understand what is at stake, what Paul is trying to combat when he writes what he writes. And what is he trying to combat? He's trying to combat people that think more highly of themselves than they ought to, people are, that are causing a divisive spirit, that are divisive in their nature. First Samuel chapter 15, you remember... Saul is the king. We always think of Saul as just being a terrible failure. 
And there's a certain degree where that's right. Um, He's a perfect picture of someone who actually starts out very well, uh, rules for about 40 years. He's doing a great job reigning and ruling, and then he decides, as he's reigning and ruling in righteousness, he decides, just like we saw King Uzziah in Isaiah chapter 6 last week, he, he decides that he can make his own rules. He commits two sins, pretty much back-to-back, that end up being the two reasons God says, you no longer are going to be king, and I'm going to give the kingdom to who? To David. I'm taking the kingdom from you because of these two sins. What were the sins? Number one, he did not wait for Samuel to sacrifice. He went ahead and decided, even though I'm not a prophet or a priest, really, even though I'm not the uh, intermediary, the intercessor between God and man, I still am going to go ahead and sacrifice because Samuel's not here yet and I really want to get this over with. Really what Saul should be known for is just the biggest and the best excuse maker in the Bible. He just comes up with excuses left and right. His first sin is um, sacrificing an animal without Samuel while Samuel was still coming to uh, the place where they were. The second sin is that he did not kill everything that God commanded to kill. He left King Agag alive, um, even though he was supposed to kill uh, the king. And he, because of that, remember who shows up or what book the Agagites show up in? otherwise known as um, the, the, the book of Esther, they show up and they decide to try and, through the man named Haman, try to take over and kill all the Jews. If Saul had done his job and killed the king, he wouldn't have had that problem with Haman because Haman wouldn't have been around. He wouldn't have been an Agagite. But he spares Agag. He spares sheep. He spares, verse 9 of chapter 15, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and they were not willing to destroy them utterly, even though that was the command of the Lord. And you remember what Saul says to Samuel. Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul says, what's his excuse for keeping those things? You should have killed them all, but Saul says what? Do you remember? We're we're keeping the best because we're going to sacrifice those to the Lord. We're, We're keeping the best. And he makes another excuse that doesn't work. Go to verse 17. Samuel speaks to Saul, and he says this. After these two sins have been committed, is it not true that though or while you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul's response in verse 20, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission and on which the Lord had sent me. I brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took some of the spoil. Notice he's pulling himself out of the picture. The people did it. I wasn't in it, but the people took some of the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, and they did it to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. 
They did it for a reason. I wasn't a part of it, and it's to sacrifice to your God, excuse maker. But for our intents and purposes this morning, I want to go back to verse 17 and remember the way that God works in the lives of humans. When you were small in your own eyes, you were exalted to be king. But now that you have become exalted in your own eyes, you are now going to be humiliated. That's the way that God works. He says, if you desire to be exalted, you must humble yourself first, and then you will be exalted. If you exalt yourself now, you will be humbled. You will be laid low. I think it's interesting. This is purely speculative and hypothetical, but I think it's interesting in Acts chapter 13, Luke, when he's writing, he says, in just one sentence, we've heard about this man named Saul, 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 and then in one sentence, Saul, who was also named Paul, and then we never hear the name Saul ever again, and we only hear the name Paul. We don't know why his name was changed from Saul to Paul. I have a guess as to why his name was Saul in the beginning, because Saul was the first king of Israel. Here's a good Jewish Hebrew boy, and his parents want to name him a name after a famous king who ruled very well for a while, had a poor ending, but still he was tall in stature, beautiful in appearance, and chosen by God to be the first king. Let's name our son Saul so that he can be reminded of uh, his lineage. And then God meets him on the road to Damascus and blinds his eyes and knocks him both literally off of his horse and figuratively off of his high horse. And as Saul is sitting in blindness, remembering the Torah, remembering the Hebrew scriptures, remembering the law and the prophets that he had studied at such a young age, I just wonder if perhaps these verses came to his memory named after Saul, and he remembers, oh, Samuel's exhortation to Saul was, do you remember when you were small in your own eyes? Do you remember when you were little and God exalted you? Be, stay little, be little. I wonder, again, we're not told, it's just hypothetical, but I wonder if Saul said, I want in front of my face a way to remember forever I need to stay small in my own eyes, little in my own eyes. What does the name Paul mean? Small, little. I wonder. Again, we don't know. We'll ask Paul when we get to heaven. We need to stay small in our own eyes. And you and I both know that Paul stayed small in his own eyes until his dying day. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 the small, humble, little-in-his-own-eyes one writes to this church. And he writes these verses that are absolutely magnificent that we're going to look at this morning and over the next couple weeks. And I want to read them this morning, and then we will set the stage. We're, we're just going to set the table and stare at the feast and maybe take one or two bites, but we'll leave the majority of the feast uh, for next week. I want to start in verse 1 to give us the context of where we've been and where we are going. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and that word if should be translated what? Since, since we have encouragement in Christ, since we have consolation of love, since we have fellowship in the Spirit, and since we have affection and compassion. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing, nothing, no nothing at all from selfishness or empty conceit, vain glory, but with humility of mind, regard, consider, count one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, And because of this, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These verses are so precious and so weighty and so deep. These verses actually in the early church were a song. They were a hymn that was sung to remember the gospel in a very, the economy of words that Paul uses here in such a short amount of space, such little ink is spilled on such magnificent truths. And he says, remember the gospel, but we have to remember why he points the Philippian church to the gospel, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Theologians go so deep into this passage, and rightfully so. We could spend a year just looking at these verses. But one of the things that I saw as I was reading through commentaries and reading through various theologians who are diving deep into the passage is they forget why Paul is even writing these verses. He's not writing to give us some Christological, a study of Jesus Christ, some enormous Uh, doctrinal, Christological uh, thesis. He's not writing to give us amazing uh, theology of who the person work of Jesus is. That's not the purpose of why he's writing. Uh, If you want that, you can look at Romans. That's the purpose why he's writing. He's writing to write doctrine and to write theology. He's just naturally writing theology, not because he needs to correct the Philippians' theology, not because they have wrong doctrine, but they have wrong living Specifically, it's just two women arguing with each other. Everything else in the church is going so, so well. But Paul says, I've heard that there are these two women that are just fighting too much. And we need to talk about how to stop fighting. We need to serve one another. We need to be humble in our minds, humble in our hearts. We need to have the mind of Christ And this is what the mind of Christ is. And very quickly, he goes into amazing Christological truths. But the purpose is just to destroy a divisive spirit. I want to just make some observations from these verses and set the stage for us as we prepare to dive in. Just some observations. 
Observation number one. Uh, Do you remember at the very beginning of our study of the book of Philippians, we, we discussed why it's important to study this book. We had four reasons. The four reasons. Number one, Paul loved this church. This church is a picture of maturity. This church is a picture of uh, doing things very well, and we want to aspire to that. He loved this church. And as far as correction, he had no doctrine to correct. He only had one area of practical living to correct, and he's doing that in these verses. Number two, this book is all about unity and joy. We love this book because it's all about unity and joy. And for a church plant, we need to be um, told day in and day out and challenged day in and day out to fight for unity and to fight for joy constantly. If anything's going to bring us down, it's not going to be a lack of giving. It's not going to be a lack of anything else. It's going to be a lack of unity. That will destroy our church. Number three, this book roots practical exhortation to live in incredibly deep doctrine. So many people say, doctrine what? Doctrine divides. We don't like doctrine. I don't talk about doctrine because doctrine divides. I think if Paul were here, he'd say the exact opposite. He would say, no, actually, not knowing doctrine and living it out divides. That's the reason why he's going to go to doctrine in these verses in chapter 2 to remind us that the doctrine of Jesus Christ and the person and work of our Savior is what will bring about unity. And number four, the fourth reason we studied the book is because this book is going to point us to Christ. I believe these verses do all four of those things. And so, the first Uh, The first thing that I see very clearly, the first observation that I make very clearly in these verses that I want to set the, the stage with is this. Every sin that we commit can ultimately be traced back to wrong thinking, wrong doctrine, or not fully believing right doctrine. Everything that we ever do that is sinful can ultimately be changed, we can ultimately turn from it and repent of it with right doctrine being remembered and lived out. People say, I don't want to talk about doctrine, I just want to talk about life experience. Just preach about um, how to deal with the divisive nature of sarcastic comments. Let's just talk about that. Let's talk about a sermon about that specific thing. And maybe there's a place for that, maybe there's a time for that, but that's one specific area that brings about Uh, divisiveness that brings about a break in fellowship. That's only one area. I think Paul would say, let's dive deep to the foundation of what creates unity and what destroys unity. Let's talk about that. And as you develop a foundation of truth, then the fruit of bad things will start to go away. Maybe a sarcastic spirit, maybe a, a, a mean, demeaning tone. Those things will go away instantly if you understand and live out right doctrine. So Paul says, I'm going to talk about unity, but before we go into unity, we need to figure out what destroys it, and we need to be reminded what the foundation for unity is. And the foundation is how Jesus served, how Jesus loved, how Jesus humbled himself. So doctrine is not bad. In fact, doctrine does not divide. Obviously, I I understand the idea that doctrine divides, that If you don't believe what I believe, then I'm not going to partake in fellowship with you. And there's a certain degree where that could be true. But Paul would say to us this morning, doctrine is what will unify. Doctrine will unify. Because the doctrine of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of 
his incarnation, his preeminent glory, his exaltation now, that doctrine will create unity. Another observation that I see just by looking at these verses is we see the formula of humbling yourself and being exalted by God. We see that formula. You remember Jesus says it in all four of the Gospels, if you desire to be exalted, you must humble yourself. If you want to be first, you must become slave of all. For whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. In the Greek, there are three voices that speak of who is actively participating in the action. We have an active voice, we have a passive voice, we have a middle voice, but we don't need to worry about that this morning. Active voice, you are doing the action. So whoever humbles himself, that means you are doing it. That's an active voice. You have to do the humbling. You humble yourself, nobody else is going to humble you for you. You humble yourself. But it's not will then be able to exalt himself. It's will be exalted by another. That's passive voice. Somebody else has to do the working on you and bring you up and exalt you and glorify you. So you actively do the work of humbling yourself and somebody else will exalt you. Do you notice in these verses that that formula is present? Go to verse 6. Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he actively emptied himself, actively took the form of a slave, actively uh, was in the likeness of man. He was found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself. He actively humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of him actively humbling himself, for this reason, who exalted him? God the Father. He did not exalt himself. God the Father said, I will exalt you, passively speaking. Jesus actively humbles himself, and the Father does the work to exalt. Jesus doesn't have to do the work to exalt himself, otherwise he would actively be exalting himself. The formula is present here, and it's a promise. It's a formula with a promise. God has promised you humble yourself. You serve those around you. You love those around you with the love of Christ, and God the Father will exalt you. You don't have to worry about doing that. God will exalt you. He'll take care of the work of exaltation. You don't need to worry about that. So number one, we see very clearly that this is really a practical exhortation made to two women who need to work on unity, and it dives so deep into doctrine. So doctrine doesn't divide, it unifies. And practical living is the fruit of right doctrine believed and lived upon. And secondly, we see the formula, we see the formula of humbling yourself and being exalted by God himself. The third thing that I want to, just by way of observation, make this morning, and then we will dive in to the progression that Paul makes. The third thing is this. There is a very clear progression. There's a very clear progression that Paul lays out for us to see, to savor, and to live out as well. And the progression is this. It's clear in these verses. Verse 6, Paul is going to start in verse 5 by saying, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to speak about the person and work of Jesus. And he starts in verse 6 by describing, number one, Christ's preeminence. Christ's preeminence. Who he was before the foundation of the world, in glory, in heaven, God, very God, 
Christ's preeminence. These verses that we find here in Philippians 2 are similar to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. Or John 17, verse 5, when Jesus prays, the glory that I had with you before the world began, that is the glory I'm about to come back to. Before the world began, Jesus Christ, preeminent in his glory, one in deity with the Father and the Spirit. Amazing that God, very God, would then, number two, condescend to us. Number two, Christ's condescension is in verses 7 through 8. So number one, we have verse 6 describing Christ's preeminence. Number two, we have verses 7 through 8 describing Christ's condescension. This is his utter humiliation. This is a word that describes him coming down to us, to our level. Another word you can throw in there is his incarnation. When he was born as a human, when he became like us, 100% human and 100% God at the exact same time, This is Christ going from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, his condescension. But the story doesn't end there. Praise God the story doesn't end there. We don't worship a dead, rotting Savior in a tomb somewhere. We worship an exalted, risen Savior. Verses 9 through 11 describe, number three, the third part of the progression, Christ's exaltation. Jesus did not stay humiliated. Jesus did not stay dead. Right now, Jesus is not lowly, meek, and mild, born in a manger kind of Jesus that we celebrate during Christmas. He was that, but he is no longer that. He is in heaven. He is coming on the clouds of heaven one day to call us to be with him in glory. He will ride on a white horse. No no more of this donkey business. And he has a sword and he wields it against every single enemy. And with a word, he will destroy his foes. We have an amazing Christ, a Savior, who in preeminent glory, Paul describes in verse 6, was with God in heaven as God, with the Father, with the Spirit. But he condescended, verses 7 through 8. He came down to be one of us, but he didn't stay one of us. He didn't stay dead. He was exalted and is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Those are the three progressions that we're going to look at in the weeks to come. So let's, with the time we have remaining, let's start on verse 6, describing Christ's preeminence. The first part of the progression that we see in Paul's writing, Christ's preeminence. Paul starts by saying in verse 5, this is the attitude that you must have My Bible says, in yourselves, literally it's among yourselves, together in the body. This is the attitude you must have together among yourselves. And this attitude is the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. So we're seeking for unity. We're seeking to be unified together. And the way we do that is through humility. You remember the two enemies of unity are selfishness, verse 3, and empty conceit or empty glory, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. The way that we destroy those enemies is with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than ourselves, and looking out for the interests of others, serving others. And so Paul is going to give us a practical, tangible example of somebody doing just that, serving others. We think about 
Isaiah 14, we think about Satan saying, I want to be like God. I want to be higher than God, and I want God to be thrown off of the throne. I want him to be destroyed. We think about that, and we realize that we're just like him, just like Adam and Eve. We're just like in our sin saying, I know I'm really here, but I want to be better than everybody. I'm going to view myself as better than everybody. The verses that we see this morning are the exact opposite. Here is God, very God. He's not lowly and thinking too highly of himself. He is high and lifted up and exalted, and yet he humbles himself. It's the exact opposite of our sinful flesh and our sinful nature. And that's what Paul says. We must have this attitude. You must look out for others' interests higher than your own, more important than your own. You must regard one another as more important than yourselves, and that is exactly what Jesus did when he came down to the earth. So have your, this attitude in yourselves, among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, there are two amazing statements that Paul makes in these verses, in this verse specifically, in verse 6. And sometimes we confuse them. The two statements are, Christ existed in the form of God. That's one amazingly important statement that we need to look at. And then secondly, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What do these two statements mean? What is Paul saying? First, he says that Jesus existed in the form of God. The reason why this is challenging to us in our English mindset is form sounds very strange to say Jesus had the form of God but he didn't have, what would our logical progression be? He didn't have the what of God. He didn't have the substance of God. We always think of form and substance. He only had the form, but he didn't have the substance. That's why we get into a sticky situation when we read, he existed in the form of God. He looked like God, but I don't know if he really was God. And some people have taken it to mean that, and heresies have come out of such thinking. What is Paul saying? What does he mean by what he says? He says this, although he existed in the form, the word form there is the word, you know it, morphe, to morph. The, the morph a could be translated this. It's not form as in opposed to substance, not really, just looking like it, but not really God through and through. Form could be translated as this. Everything about him was what it means to be God. The essence of God was in Jesus Christ. Some of your translations might try and say that in the way that they word it, being in very nature God. That's a better translation than form, in my opinion, because it's bringing about the understanding of what that word morphe means. Paul is saying that Jesus was, in his very essence and who he was through and through, God, very God. Some translations might say possessing inwardly and displaying outwardly the very nature of God himself. If anybody has that translation, I'd like to know, because that is a very um, rare translation. Some might say the very essence of God, who, having the very essence of God, we know what this verse and what this word specifically cannot mean. We know what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that Jesus physically looks like the Father. Some people think that this word just means he physically has the appearance and the shape of the Father, displaying for us to see. 
But we know that this word cannot mean that Jesus has the shape of the Father or looks like the Father because the Father is spirit. No one can see the Father. The only one that can see the Father is if you see the Son, then Jesus says, oh, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father because the Father and I are one. So it's not saying they're carbon copies of each other in the way they look because the Father is spirit. So then what is it saying? They're carbon copies of one another in who they are in their essence, in who they are. Jesus is God, very God. And just in case people would mix that up or that's not enough information to, to prove that to them or to remind that to them, um, Paul says not only did he exist in the form of God, but he also did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality with God, what a perfect way to translate that word. That's another word that you and I know in the Greek. The Greek word is isos. We get many words from isos. We get isometric, right? Just equaling the exact same measurement. They're the same measurement. They're the same length. We got isosceles triangles, right? Isosceles triangles. We've got some students that know what that is. What is that? It's a triangle that has two sides that are identical, They're the exact same length. There is no better way for Paul to explain in the Greek language, Jesus is equal to God, very God, than the way he's doing it right here. He existed in the morphe of God, the essence of who God was and is, and he also was equal to God, isos with God. He's exactly like God. In every single way, he is God, very God. And if these verses aren't enough for you. Let's turn really quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writes a couple other places, and so do some gospel writers. The entire book of John would help us, but we don't have time to read through that this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 say this, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And Christ is the image of God, the icon of God, the exact representation of who God the Father is. Turn to John chapter 1. We already alluded to it this morning, but John chapter 1, verse 18. Not only is John writing that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, but also John chapter 1, verse 18 No one has seen God at any time, only the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Jesus has explained him. We can't see God the Father, but Jesus has communicated to us who the Father is because he is one in nature with the Father. He is God, very God. He communicates to us who the Father is because he is equal in his deity to the Father. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is the image, there it is again, the icon of the invisible God. We cannot see the Father, but Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. He is God, very God. One last passage, Hebrews chapter 1. This is probably my favorite in referring to the deity of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature 
and upholds all things by the word of his power. He is God, very God, through and through. No ifs, ands, or buts. No qualifications. And yet, even as we studied this morning in the Family Bible Hour, there are so many people that desire to take him at a good preacher or a good teacher or a good prophet and lived a good life. They say, I don't, I don't know if I believe that Jesus was God, but I think that he was a very decent person. And I want to be like him and I want to live like him. I love what C.S. Lewis says in regards to people who think that Jesus could be taken as a good teacher, a moral man. Listen to these words. These words are from mere Christianity. In regard to the deity of Jesus, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, for he has not left that open to us because he did not intend to. I love that passage from that book. We cannot take Jesus as a good moral man, just a good teacher, and I want to live like him. Because if he's only just a good moral man, then the things he said were either lies and he should have been killed. Or he's just crazy and insane, and we should mock him. Or they were truth. And he never claimed to be a good teacher. He claimed to be God, very God. So Paul says he is exactly who he claimed to be. He is God, very God. And yet, though he was God, very God, in form, in morphe, and in isos, equal with God, the end of verse 6, he did not regard those things as something to be grasped. Now, what does this word mean? What does it mean he didn't regard that as something to be grasped? If you remember the old King James, he didn't regard it as robbery with God. didn't regard it as robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? Why did the King James translate it? It wasn't robbery to be equal with God. Why does my Bible say it's not something to be held on to or grasped? Some of your translations might say something different. We have to go back to what this word means in the original language. And just like our language and words in our language do, this word began to evolve and take on different meaning, different form. At the, at the very beginning, this word meant robbery. It meant stealing something. And that's why the King James translates it as such. He didn't regard equality with God as robbery. King James just said, let's take it at the first Meaning of that word didn't regard, regard it as robbery. But the word did not stay only meaning robbery. In fact, it meant not just the act of robbery, but what you are desiring to steal, the thing that you are stealing. So it morphed from robbery, the very act, to the thing that you're wanting to steal. Then it morphed from that, it continued to evolve from things that you want to steal to things which you prize highly, things that you greedily hang on to and clutch on to. And finally, instead of just a prized possession that is something that you are greedy about, it referred to something that you would never let go. It referred to something that you would never allow anyone to take a hold of. You have white knuckles clinging to this thing because you think you deserve it, you think it's everything to you, and you are unwilling to give it up no matter what the cost. That's what this word means. When Paul says, Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, 
he did not regard or consider or count or think that equality with God was something that he would not let go. He would not give up. Instead of being like us, if we get something that we highly prize, oh, I don't think you can touch that. Don't give that to Chelsea. She might eat it. Don't, you know, don't touch. Jesus says, I am God, very God, and yet I will not cling to it so tightly that I won't let it go. I will freely and obediently let it all go. I will let it all go. Angels are not omniscient, right? Angels are not omniscient. They don't know everything. And I just wonder, in eternity past, when they are created and they see Jesus, the one who created them, sitting on his throne, and they see all of humanity, some worshiping him, most not, when are we going to destroy the world? When are we going to judge the world? Because they should be worshiping you. If only they could see you right now, they should be crying out to you in splendor, in glorious worship. And maybe one angel overhears the Father speaking to the Son. We have a plan to turn the hearts of men who are now haters of us. We have a plan to make them lovers of us. Great, what's the plan? Jesus is going to leave heaven. He has to leave. Wait, that, that's, that's the thing that we love the most about heaven. He's here and we see his glory. How can him stepping into humanity and the universe that he created, how can that do anything? How can him taking the form of a human do anything to bring glory to himself. Leave him here in heaven and let his glory radiate so everybody can see. Oh no, if he doesn't go, if he doesn't take on the form of humanity, if he isn't the perfect substitute for those that currently hate him and will even kill him, then he cannot turn their hearts, save them, cleanse them from sin. We can't do that apart from a perfect, holy, sinless, and human substitute. I wonder how long it took for the angels to wrap their minds around that. I know they finally did because when Jesus comes, they are singing their hearts out. And I think that we, when we sing our hearts out at Christmas time, I think we need to just step back a little bit and remember God, very God, says even though I'm God, very God, in my preeminent glory with the Father, I will gladly step into human history. I think if we think about this, every single excuse that we ever give to humble ourselves and love one another falls so short. They're just laughable. Oh, you don't understand, Patrick. I'd love to serve and I'd love to love the people around me, but I'm just really too busy right now busier than God who runs the universe and holds every molecule in place? Oh, but you don't understand. It's just going to take too much time for me to serve. I, I don't know if I can take the time out of my schedule. 33 years. That's how long it took Jesus to live as a perfect human being and die the death we deserve and 
rise again. You don't understand, that's a very demeaning task. I don't know if I can stoop that low. Is your reputation better than God's? And yet he stoops so low to wash the feet of the one who would betray him. You don't understand. The people that you're asking me to serve and to love, they don't really deserve my time. They aren't really worth my love. They aren't really worth my care. I'll love the people that deserve it, but you're asking me to do a little too much by loving those who don't. How much love from God did we deserve? None. And yet he freely said, I will give you all of my love. I'm not going to hold any of it back. That is the love that we celebrate when we come to the table. A love that would say, I will give of myself. I'm not going to hang on to my deity and my worship and my glory in heaven. I'm going to let the glory go, let heaven go, and veil my deity as it were. Still 100% God, but we'll look next week at what it meant for him to take on human form, to be completely 100% God and 100% human. He said, I will love you even though I'm busy even though it'll cost me a lot of time, even though we aren't worth it. But his love and his death and his resurrection brings many sons to glory. Father, I pray that as we partake of communion this morning, that we would be reminded that Jesus Christ, God, very God, did not regard equality with God something that he would not let go of to love us and to win us back. Oh, the love of Jesus Christ, a friend of sinners, pierced for my transgressions, crushed for my iniquities, taking my place to save my soul. Father, may the truth of the gospel permeate our church, that there would never be anyone we would look to and say, I just can't love them, I just can't serve them, I just can't be unified with them, but that everyone around us, we would obey Paul and we would obey the Spirit who wrote these words. We would have the same attitude of Jesus in our own hearts. God, unify Christ Bible Church, even now, as we partake of these elements together, I pray that we would remember the, the sacrificial love and selfless love that Jesus poured out and demonstrated for us in leaving heaven, coming to earth, taking on flesh, dying the death we deserve. And may we worship and praise him as the exalted one now at the right hand of the Father. We pray it in his name. Amen. At this time, I'd like to ask the men to come.